I'm gonna go out on a limb here and just say that I despise the word sustainability because it has created confusion and been totally greenwashed and by companies. And I see many of our same peers use the word sustainability to gain credibility and it is diluting the real value. And unfortunately, there's no real way to hold people accountable to that. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Glory Media, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from each other, the question remains the same. What's your mission? Thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat today. It's a true pleasure. It's I'm really excited to have this conversation and to talk all things uh, sustainability and leadership and, and the like. Yeah. So usually I end my interviews with this question, but kind of for the purpose of what we're going to talk about today, I think it's important to provide some context. So why don't we start by zooming out and like looking at the bigger picture and then zooming in a little bit later on, on some of the more micro stuff. Awesome. You co-founded Everlane back in 2010. What was your mission when you started the brand? What was the bigger picture for you? It's an interesting question. When you start a company, do you start with a mission or does the mission get formed over time? And I don't know that most companies start with a absolutely clear vision and mission. And if they do, they often end up changing regardless. I think we operated under, and I operate under two sort of um, concepts. One, I really believe in the idea of doing right as often as possible. Um, and doing right means doing right by the planet, doing right by people, doing right is often a foil to doing wrong. So you look at an industry and you say, what's going wrong here? Why is it not working and how do we do better? And then I really love the intersection of commerce and culture uh, because commerce is this age old way of engaging with other people, one of the oldest ways. And nowadays it has such a huge impact on culture. Commerce sort of moves culture forward. So I think I didn't know it back then. I was sort of following my heart to say, hey, I love the world of commerce. I like building things. I like selling things. And I really want to go and change an industry that felt like it was wrong in consumers. And fashion and retail sat right in the middle of that intersection. And what really struck me about fashion at the time was that, and actually in some ways, this still exists in many areas. You could buy a t-shirt for $2 and have no idea where it was made, or you could buy a t-shirt for $250 and sort of see that it was made in America. But there was no real understanding of what value was. And it felt odd to me that in other industries like the food industry, we have a list of ingredients, but in apparel, there was zero transparency and that felt wrong. And so the mission really was how do we do right when the industry is doing wrong in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. So now it's been about 12, 13 years since, um, you know, you founded the company, you know, speaking to your earlier point, how has that mission 
evolved since it started or has it stayed true since you know the very beginning days um what have you learned and how that how has that informed your mission if we're going to sum up 12 years of learning in, uh, <laughs> in one answer i think we might be here for a while so i'll yeah. try to hit the salient points which is the intent of doing right where others do wrong is still very much the center of how I think about mission and how we think about it at Everlane. However, um, it absolutely has evolved because the company's grown, times have changed. And as we very much know about some of the, um, about anything that happens culturally, the, the line of what is right continues to move forward, which is great. So the bar goes higher and higher. We started out with what, uh, what you may know as pricing transparency, um, which was that we're going to sell a t-shirt and we're going to tell you exactly what it costs us to make so you know what the value is, so you can trust us, so building trust. That pricing transparency sparked a whole shift in the industry around transparency, and we coined the term radical transparency. Radical transparency then moved into factories because the collapse of Rana Plaza um, basically made it so that people had no idea where their clothes came from and mm -hmm. um, thought maybe my clothes is made in a place with poor conditions. So we started to share the inside of all of our factories, the stories behind it. And then as we grew bigger, what we realized is the more urgent need was that industries are creating um, all kinds of pollution and waste um, and that we can do better. Um, and so sustainability transparency or environmental transparency became the next foothold. And what I love about environmental transparency is that you're never done, right? Like you can be done with pricing transparency. You share it once, you're done. That's it. But with environmental transparency, there is always more work to do because the definition of sustainability is to be able to live your life today without taking resources from tomorrow. Um, and so if you imagine that simple definition, uh, there is just so much work to do to not be taking resources away from uh, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I definitely want to um, unpack a few of those things that you mentioned in um, in the interview. But you started the company with a single product, which was the cotton tea. Yep. What is it about a great cotton t-shirt that made it the ideal product to launch with that made it so representative of the overall, you know, vision and values of the brand? It's the ultimate commodity. Like it's like, I'm wearing a t-shirt right now. Everybody wears a t-shirt. And if the ultimate commodity or product could be so manipulated, it felt to us and to me that there was such an opportunity to take that commodity and reinvent it in the way that I think, you know, industrial designers are so obsessed with chairs. I kind of find the same obsession with like a t-shirt. It's like, there's so many ways to do it. And so why don't we do it in the most purest, simplest form and be hundred percent transparent about it. And if we can do it with that, that sort of lays the foundation for everything else. And what does the, the perfect tea look like to you in terms of, I guess, composition, but also maybe even just fit because for something that is as ubiquitous as it is, uh, it's remarkably hard sometimes to find the perfect tea. I totally agree. And I would say that when we started Everlane, when I started, I had this obsession with like being a like in an, I come from more of an industrial design thought process, not purely fashion design thought process. It was, we're going to make the perfect tea, the perfect sweater, the perfect like trench, the perfect, and it's going to be one of everything. And then what you realize is that what is perfect for me is different than what is perfect for you. 
And so we have to sort of figure out how many versions of perfect we're going to offer. And so in a tea program, you know, for men, as an example, we'll offer the basic everyday tea, something with a bit more slub um, that's like lighter and cooler, something that's a bit heavier for the winters, and then something that's probably like a little bit better on a sweat wicking. And we try to just think more functionally oriented uh, and, and go from that perspective. But I also think that tea is always going to be made ethically. It's always going to be transparently priced. Um, and you know that when we're making it, we're doing it with the least amount of carbon impact and water wastage as possible. Mm-hmm. So since 2010, Everlane has grown to be you know, a formidable influence in the industry. You've grown, scaled, survived a pandemic, um, and a lot more. How have you made sure that your values and the integrity have remained as you've scaled out? Um, has it been easier or harder to maintain focus, I guess, as the company has grown and become more complex, not just in the way that it might operate, but also in the landscape that it's operating in? The hardest part about growing a company other than building the right team is that the puck is constantly moving. And so as you're growing, the company's growing and it's getting more complex internally. And then the world is shifting underneath you. And so you're constantly having to reinvent yourself, but now with a bigger and bigger team. So it's by no, it's, and then of course, put a pandemic in the middle of that. It's going to make the job of management, the job of building so hard for everybody all the time. And I think I talked to so many friends now that run companies. It is so complex to run a company now, especially with remote. So I, I think what we're trying to do and what I, what we're doing is to really simplify. So yeah, radical transparency, all of those are helpful, but we really narrowed in on in the environmental side because that gives the team very clear purpose and clarity as to how we make decisions. So it's always with a lens mm-hmm. to how are we reducing our carbon footprint and reducing um, what I call waste um, or water pollution or other forms of pollution. Um, so that that focus has been really clear because if radical transparency had just stayed as radical transparency, we would have been all over the place. We really had to choose a place to narrow in on yeah. um, and say, this is what we're going to focus on for the next 10 years. Right. So so that has really served as the bedrock of the company from which you know, ultimately all decisions are rooted in as you've grown the company, as the company has become larger and expanded. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I think you, you run, you interview people with a mission all the time and mission driven companies are mission driven companies. They're not just mission driven, they're mission driven companies. And so we have two goals, right? One is the sustainability side of what we do. And the other one is um, to make incredible product that makes people feel good about themselves when they put it on that they love. And I think that intersection of creating beauty and sustainability is really the opportunity that we sit at today. Right. It's it's interesting because, um, you know, we, we talk to a lot of founders and a lot of them that work within kind of this um, intersection between sustainability and in design, one of them being, you know, Joey from Allbirds, Joey and Tim from Allbirds. And so, you know, repeatedly, one of the common themes that I, I see is just how important design and a great product is in tandem with sustainability in order to make sure that there is an impact with consumers and that it resonates with consumers. Cause you know, is it enough for a product to be 
sustainable without great design and great kind of um, thinking behind how a consumer is is going to, um, I guess, be attracted to the product. Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a really interesting question you bring up because in to the early 2000s or the mid 2000s the notion of a mission driven company didn't really exist and then and maybe they existed in small ways then i think everlane folks like warby allbirds to uh, many followed the footsteps of call it patagonia or ben and jerry's where it became a mission driven company and what we're realizing now in the 2020s i think is that you want to be a company with a mission um that a company that is mission driven because if you put mission driven at the front of everything it is good, but your point is exactly right. You can't sacrifice the product and you can't sacrifice quality and ultimately doing right by the consumer. And so the notion to me is that's exactly where I guess I would say the opportunity sits, which is how do we show people that you can have beautiful quality product, you can have beautiful um, uh, clothes that fits well and it's sustainable and that you don't actually have to sacrifice one or the other. But if you put purely the mission at the front and sacrifice the product, you will end up with a bunch of things that people don't want to wear. And then where are we, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so I think those two really have to sit at the center together. Um, but you have to make sure that the business is thriving, healthy, and growing. Because if it's not, then you can never fulfill your mission. Yeah. Yeah. And Everlane was built on a foundation that espouses radical transparency. Does transparency mean the same thing today as it did when you founded Everlane in from your perspective? It's an interesting question. So the I think starting at the base, people often confuse transparency with ethics. Um and and I understand that and it makes sense. For me, transparency is we're transparent about how we work and what we do so that people can hold us accountable. Um, And so that still holds very much true. I would say that the world is more transparent than it was before um, and constantly getting more transparent, which is a really good thing. Um, What is right and ethical, I think, continues to move forward. And people see now, 10 years ago, you didn't have to have an impact report. You could do anything you want to the environment and get away with it. And now you can't. So I, I think that the transparency is creating more accountability, which is great. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to be sustainable? Like what does sustainability even mean nowadays? Ooh. Because it's such a buzzy I word. That word. And one that's very vague and all encompassing, especially for consumers to understand, because there's no real kind of um, industry wide accepted kind of, I guess, standard on how consumers are evaluating and understanding what it even means to be sustainable. And on top of that, there's a lot of companies that um, misuse that word. So how do you define it? I'm going to go out on a limb here and just say that I despise the word sustainability because it has created confusion and been totally greenwashed and by companies. And I see many of our same peers use the word sustainability to gain credibility and it is diluting the real value. And unfortunately there is no real way to hold people accountable to that. Um, what we try to do is never use that word, but unfortunately like there's not another word to replace it. 
what we try to do instead is to be very specific about the things that matter. Um, so we use this framework called um, keep it clean, keep it cool, do right by people. And that's as simple as I could say it, which is, hey, if we're going to keep it clean, that means we want to have as little waste as possible. That means water, pollution, other waste, et cetera. Or if it is waste, it's going to compost. And then keep it cool means reduce carbon. Just really simple. Um, and then do right by people is all the you know social governance. But we'll stay around sustainability uh, on those first two. But it really is intersectional. All these three things go together. And mm-hmm. um, when I think about the keep it clean and keep it cool part, we just put numbers around it. So keep it clean or keep it cool is purely a carbon number. Keep it clean is how do we use more recycled materials? How do we make sure that the factories recycle all the water so that it's clean and clear? Um, and we do that with you know our famous uh, factory Cytex that does our denim. Um, so those are the real numbers behind what we do. And I could be much more specific around those numbers, like the science-based targets that we have, the fact that we've reduced emissions per product by north of 30% now since um, 2019, uh, which is really impactful. Um, But there's so many issues with the word sustainability. And there's even issues if we were to go deeper and things like carbon credits, which a lot of people are using to say, cool, I'm sustainable. I bought carbon credits and carbon credits are generally often misleading and uh, at times can be total bullshit. Is it, I mean, it almost seems like I suppose an excuse to, to, you know, uh, put out carbon and then, you know, say that you're just kind of putting a bandaid on the solution by purchasing carbon credits, essentially. It, it absolutely is. And the problem is that carbon credits are really hard to verify because they're often, there's going to be a whole host of things that change in a carbon credit because it's like what the truth about carbon is it's like calories. They're not mm-hmm. the same. Um, you can have carbon credits that are truly removing carbon from the air today, or you can have carbon credits that are really 30 years in the future. We're taking care of this forest and a tree would have been chopped down, but that tree isn't gonna be chopped down for 30 uh, 30 years from now and it'll still be up. So we're gonna take the credits from 30 years from now and tell you what they're worth today. And that's gonna be the carbon credit you're buying. And then you gotta really prove, was that tree gonna be chopped down or not? So there's just so much BS around carbon credits. And what I'll tell you also is um, I'd rather see companies spend the dollars of carbon credits towards doing the research to reduce their carbon footprint. You know, we have a shoe that we released um, that was all leather uh, about, I think it was in 2019, uh, maybe 2018, and it was 27 kilograms. We're releasing a shoe this April that is now down to 4.6 kilograms of carbon, um, which is really low. That's like driving 10 miles. That's a lot better. And that's through research and doing a lot of work, finding the right materials, but it takes time. And so companies just don't want to take the time and they want to just buy carbon credits and, you know, give themselves an A plus on the report card. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you mentioned you placed numbers um, and put out numbers out there. You've done the research, Um, but do consumers know what those numbers mean? Like, do they know how to translate that? Because it's one thing to be able to be transparent about those numbers, but how do you imbue meaning into those numbers for the everyday person that is not dialed into this kind of language? How do you make it digestible for the end consumer? I think if someone can figure out how to market the impact of carbon, 
they have a huge opportunity on their hands. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Everlane pioneered this notion of um, Renew, which was taking virgin plastic, which a lot of our clothes are made out of polyester and using recycled plastic. And we introduced that campaign in 18. And since then we're like, we're on our polyester, we're 97% recycled materials. Patagonia is I think somewhere nearby there too. Um, and a number of companies have started to push that forward and there's a lot more material available. So there is a possibility to teach people what virgin materials are and why recycled is better because it's built on the backs of thousands of years, sorry, uh, decades of recycling marketing. At some point, the marketing around carbon will come through because it'll be built on decades of people understanding if I do this, I'm releasing carbon into the air. But the problem really is that at the end of the day, you're making decisions about your daily life. Am I really not gonna drive 10 miles because it, it produces four, you know, four kilograms of carbon? People will say no. So uh, it is a tricky one um, because it means stopping sacrificing and people don't like to sacrifice. So it's really up to technology and companies like Everlane or Patagonia um, or food companies to start providing alternatives that are lower carbon. And then the question for a consumer becomes, should I buy the lower carbon version? Might as well, because mm -hmm. it's the same price and also really attractive and beautiful. Right, right. Um, I was reading Everlane's 2021 impact report earlier and in it it says that the company's eliminated 90 percent of virgin plastic from its supply chain um 90 is a big number but can you give some insight into how challenging it is for a company to get to that point or like what it takes to to do so um and how can other companies follow in those footsteps I'll say two things. It, it's a lot of work and it took us a lot of time and the materials are more expensive and they have longer lead times. So it's not for the faint of heart. You cannot be a fast <laughs> fashion business and doing this um, because it just takes more work and research. Um, fortunately, with a lot of the marketing that's going on, factories and mills and material providers have stepped up to the plate and they're saying, hey, we're just going to provide more material that's recycled. So that's awesome. We're seeing a lot of that. If regulation came to bear, it would totally change the game, right? So imagine if all of a sudden it was cheaper to import duties on recycled materials than it is for virgin, that would be a huge win uh, because you would basically subsidize some of the costs on recycled materials over virgin materials from a duties perspective. And um, so there's, it's hard work, it's more expensive and that's why most people don't do it. In terms of how companies can follow, we actually are gonna start hosting conversations and calls to start educating other people so that they can know where we get sources from, how they can do the same thing. Because uh, it is, it's, everyone's got to work together on this one. Uh, and it's possible. Um, and we're happy to share how we do it. Yeah, because, you know, being able to implement, um, let's say, a green policy, for lack of a better word, um, is great, but it, it can seem so daunting and similar to how we define sustainability. It seems also very nebulous. You don't really know where to start. It could be paralyzing for a lot of companies. Do you do any work that, you know, uh, campaigns or advocates for change in policy with lawmakers and elected officials to make a broader impact and speaking to your point around, around regulations? I'm a big believer that money talks and we have so much solar 
and so much, so many electric cars on the road because of government subsidies. It's also why we have a lot of corn. I believe that the government could do more towards creating effective subsidies or providing grants for those that are more sustainable. So rather than penalizing or trying to force people to be at a certain place, I, I sort of believe that creating incentives through a positive lens will get us there faster. Um, and so I know people are working on this, but unfortunately uh, haven't seen any real movement on that yet. Um, but hopefully we do see something and it's, and it's an area that we're, we put on our priority set this year to start getting more involved on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and someone would argue um, that operating within a sector like fashion and retail comes into direct odds with sustainability because it encourages or it continues to encourage a culture of consumption and overconsumption. What would you say to those people that, you know, have that kind of perspective? It's definitely a very cognitive dissonance. Uh, and I agree. And <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to change the consumer sentiment. We have an insatiable appetite in North America and around the world for new and more. And that has, you know, there are certain things that hold true forever. And that one has never been not true. It's like, we always want more and we always want new. So in the, in the light of that reality, is it better to not participate or to provide an alternative? And as I mentioned at the beginning, use commerce as a way to push culture forward. I guess I just, we all have to choose where we play and I choose to sit in that, that world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know how you think about it from that perspective, but that's that's at least my mine. And I would still say that the the true critic in the room should be critical and still will be critical. And I, I get that. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of intersection because on one hand, you do have a culture that is so focused on the new. Um, yeah. But if you can't if you if you you have to start somewhere right and um you know maybe there's a way of embracing this culture of new by embracing a sense of old if that makes sense and i i feel like i'm starting to see a little bit more of it in terms of the circular or the dialogue around the circular economy the dialogue around um repurposing and and refreshing a lot of big companies i've seen are now integrating programs like that that encourage consumers to um look at kind of a a uh, i guess kind of a vintage model or a uh you know buying used garments as well so it's it's an interesting kind of point that we're in i think in that conversation but yeah i think that there is a way to work within that culture for sure it's it's i agree and it's a different product and proposition than Everlane, although we really do encourage mm -hmm. people to resell. But I, you know, had the fortune of moving into a new new home a year and a half ago and buying furniture. Everything is either vintage or it's custom with basically reclaimed wood. Right. And the problem is it takes so much more time. And it's kind of crazy because oftentimes vintage is the same or more expensive than new. And that's the part of the issue is that when the new is so cheap and so readily available, it's very attractive. Um, yeah. And so I've been using my home as sort of an exercise of how do I get, 
how do I practice that sort of circularity way of living that you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. It ain't easy. No, for sure. Um, and so with a mission as ambitious as yours, as Everlane's, you're opening yourself up to a lot of eyeballs, a lot of scrutiny to a magnifying glass that is going to hold you accountable as a company. How do you deal with that kind of scrutiny? Um, does it make you nervous? Does it propel you? Do you use it as fuel? What, how, how do you, how, what's your relationship with that? I guess. There's a lot of relationships because I think what you're asking is sort of, um, Hey, you're doing, you're trying to do something that is good in the world from your lens. But the truth is, is that we are human and humans are not perfect and there is no perfect. And then even more so Lance, like what is perfect to you is different than what is perfect to me. So there will always be critics in the room. Mm -hmm. I used to get very emotionally caught up in that. Um, nowadays, what we try to do is cover all the bases, be really thoughtful. We've also been a little bit less bold in our claims or loud and just more we'll talk when we've done the work. So we've shifted a bit of how we operate, which is do the work. And when the work is done, talk about it mm. versus talking about the work that we might do or will do in the future. Um, and so being more fact oriented, being more honest about where we are. Um, and, you know, my dream is that when we talk about the good, we also, or my hope is that when we talk about the good, we also talk about the bad because it's very easy to just focus on, oh, I did this better. I did that better. But there's a lot of things we don't do well, you know, and, and one of them, by the way, is around circularity and how do we promote more of that? Or how do we help consumers buy circular instead of new? Um, so I, I think we've been criticized plenty and it was not, and it is not easy. And at this point it's sort of par for the course. So you get kind of used to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The bigger you get for sure. Um, what have been some of the more challenging obstacles you've experienced pursuing your mission and, you know, what have you learned from those experiences? The most challenging was a series of events we had in COVID. The first one being with, um, you know, union challenges where we didn't even have a union being formed, but somehow the narrative got pulled out. And by being a company that's transparent, we were told that we're not being transparent. And then the next thing you know, Bernie Sanders is tweeting about you. And then <laughs> you go, well, that's fun. Uh, what do we do next? And that mm -hmm. was definitely not easy because you know you can't control that narrative at all, nor do you necessarily need to. It just was challenging. And so we've had all kinds of, I think, like I said, radical transparency has this feeling of meaning we're 100% ethical. And then everybody can be their own definition of ethical um, and has their own view of it. And so what we've done first is be much more clear about what we stand for, what we are committing to, what that means, and then making that very public and clear so that people understand where we're good and where we're not. Because then it, then at least we can point to, hey, this is what we said. Where, do, where are we sitting from what we all agreed on? Um, and even then, it doesn't mean that solves all the problems. So um, uh, consistently working with the internal team is the most important for us and making sure that the people internally understand where we are, why we're doing it, and, if, and what we could be doing better. Right. 
And if we talk about, if we refer to sustainability within the context of our conversation, um, how do you think, quote unquote, sustainability, climate activism, and human rights are intertwined with each other? Where do they overlap? Because it is an intersectional conversation and everything kind of relates to each other. Yeah, the unfortunate part about climate change is that um, it affects the people with the least, the most. And mm -hmm. as a result, um, and, and the people with the most are creating the problem. So the people with the most affect the people with the least, the most, right? Which is a very unpleasant, I mean, it's a word, it's a word, twisting my words here, but it's like, you get it. The people with the money affect the people with the least amount and they affect them with the most amount. Um, and so that's just a very unfortunate situation. Uh, for a lot of people. And I don't, you know, I think what, what one will say about climate activism is we've got to do the work um, to make sure that those people with the least uh, just have the resources um, or at least the ways to get out of it. And I think people are helping there, um, but it's, again, it's difficult because the impact that the people with the most are having doesn't come till a decade later. And then it's hard to unwind. So that's where climate activism comes in is if we can start to undo um, some of this work that we've done on the planet or some of the challenges, we will help those people with the least um, in a better way. And this is where one of the things that's interesting, I think, is that the place where this intersects is technology. Because if you take, moving Everlane aside, if you take technology like electric cars or nuclear or um, uh, decarbonization, all of those are new technologies that basically the people that are entrepreneurs and capitalists or whatever are creating new companies and they're helping out those with the least. So it sort of opens up this new space for um, everybody to win um, if we create uh, new technologies that undo our climate impact. Right, right. Shifting the conversation to your your journey, um, how has how does optimism play a role in your life and work? Do you consider yourself an optimist, or um, you know, a lot of people would also say that there's a value in being a cynic as well because you may be better prepared to take on different challenges. But how do you kind of approach life and problem solving challenges? <laughs> um... I laugh about that because I don't think it gets talked about enough realistically, or when people talk about it, it's sort of from a um, very, per I don't know, it, 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 people talk about it, but they talk about their sort of like the journey of being an entrepreneur and the ups and downs and the reality is there are ups and downs in everyone's life. Um, and, you know, you can have moments where you feel like you're on top and then things fall and you feel like you're on the bottom. And the truth is it's all in our own head. Um, because we're just judging ourselves um, based on the way we think other people are judging us. And the reality is, is that people are all just judging themselves and not spending a lot of time judging others. So how I try to deal with optimism, I think you have to be an optimist, um, generally speaking, to start a company, but then you also have to be a bit paranoid or uh, thinking things aren't going to work because you have this motivation to fix it. I've always like... In my early days, when I first started Everlane, I started from a place of fear. 
Like this thing's not going to work. This thing's not going to work. And therefore we need to fix it. Now I sort of try to operate and work with teams as to what's possible. And so I always ask the question and I learned this from a really awesome mentor. What does great look like and how do we get to great? And if you start with that framework, it's different than the early framework that I gave to you, which is how do we do, like what's wrong with the industry and how do we fix it? That's coming from a negative place. Like I actually really love this idea of like, hey, what does great look like? If we could just paint a picture of what does great look like, what does it look like? And then let's go figure out how to get there. And that mm -hmm. way of operating is a lot less stressful. Right. And it's a subtle shift in, in mindset and perspective in approaching the same problem um, and, and just kind of looking at it differently. It's really cool to do because when you really ask the question, you start to just say, what does great look like? What does great look like? And you ask, okay, if we did those three things, is that really what great looks like? Okay, great. How do we measure? And you ask the question over and over again ad nauseum. It forces everyone to be aligned because all of a sudden everyone says, yeah, actually that is what great looks like. Now we can agree on that versus oftentimes it's what is broken? How do we fix it? But you don't actually necessarily know that you're all aligned on how we fix it. You're just all aligned on what's broken, which yeah. is a very different mentality. Right, right. And I'm curious, what role has the word no played in your entrepreneurial journey? Is it something that you wield as a tool? Has it kept you focused? Um, I'm sure as you were building the company in the early days, there were probably lots of no's. So what, what kind of role has that word played in your life? This is such a good question because it relates exactly to the thing you said before. And it's something I spend and I actually coach entrepreneurs on with and work with nowadays, which is no used to be everything. It was like, no, we're not doing this. Nope, 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 nope. And oh yeah, yes to this. And now when you say, what does great look like? The question becomes, hey, is that in our top three priorities to get us to great? Yes. Great. Let's do it. If not, let's not. Mm. And it becomes a much easier conversation because everything just comes back to, is this getting us to great in this priority set? And if not, we don't have to spend our time doing it. And if for some reason we all feel intuitively like this is really important, then are we, did we miscalculate somewhere else, like on what great looks like? And do we need to rethink that? Right. And so it's helped a lot in where to be distracted by and where to not be distracted by. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And what gives you courage at the end of the day? What do you use as fuel to stand up for your own ideas, tackle scary problems, um, you know, scale mountains? What What is it that gives you courage for yourself? Some aspect of probably trauma, uh, being told, <laughs> do better, do better, do better by my parents. I'm <laughs> sure you've dealt with that. Um, we all yep. have. Uh, so you're like, oh my God, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. So that's like one part of it. But the other part of it, I know I've really spent a lot of time, uh, you know, we don't, we're not talking much personal here, but I went to this thing called Hoffman Institute, which is up in Northern California. It's like one week off the grid, a lot of really deep work. And I think at the end of the day, the work I've been trying to do is really just to know who I am versus the outside world. It's, I know what matters to me what my goals are in the absence of everyone else. And so I try to come back to that as much as possible. Mm. Of, hey, this is who I am. This is what matters to me. And regardless of what other people think, this is who I am.
And that gives me a lot of courage when it's done well. Um, but it is often hard to come back to uh, because there's, as I said, just were, you know, a lot of judgment out there. So how do you remind yourself to go to kind of recenter and refocus? There's a bit of meditation. There's a bit of breathing. Um, there's a reading a couple books. Um, you know, I've read, uh, whether it be the biographies of a lot of, um, sort of successful people in their own right and here seeing their struggles, um, to, you know, uh, call it a couple Zen Buddhism books, um, always help and sort of grounding myself in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you practice any of those things. You know what? I find that sometimes it's the simplest things that help you recenter. And sometimes it's just a matter of being still, or mm -hmm. for me, I just try to practice zooming in and zooming out, or that's how I like to kind of frame it. And when things feel overwhelming, then I like to zoom in and just focus on simple singular tasks uh, and not be overwhelmed by everything, all the noise around it. And if I feel like I don't really understand you know, purpose or impact, then it's the opposite and zooming out to try to understand what the bigger picture is. So it's for me and my, you know, what's worked for me personally is really just focusing on the simple things. Um, and that's kind of what it comes down to for me. Yeah. I want to build on that because I actually, I actually agree. And my friend told me this and it, it's worked like so well for me is just to like be in my body more. Like, mm. cause I'm like, when things are, when you don't have the courage, like the head has just gone down, like my mind's like racing in a whole bunch of different places. So it's like, go cook, go for mm -hmm. a walk, go do something physical, not like a hard physical, like just something that's sort of peaceful, but physical. And all of a sudden, the mind lets go of all those thoughts and you sort of come back to like actually being in yourself. And then I can come back to the same problem with a much fresher perspective. So it's like really that simple. And I completely agree with you um, that uh, I forgot that I use that all the time. Yeah, Every definitely. Day. I think it's also one thing that really became um, something that I was much more aware of during the pandemic. And I pursued things that I didn't have the time to pursue. Otherwise, whether that was cooking or taking up a new hobby that just required singular focus on a singular task. And something that simple actually just really helped to clear the mind because you did not have to worry about all the million other things or deadlines or meetings or whatever it is that were kind of occupying that space in the head before. And you, it was very cathartic and very refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And I I've since removed, actually I use Instagram, but only on um, uh, the mobile web. Mm. I've removed things that just, I found when I would get into that mode, I would go instantly into things like Instagram to just try to like distract myself versus just actually be with myself. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Good advice. Um, just as we wind down here, what excites you the most about the road ahead? The road of Everlane and the road of the world. You know, what? I'll leave it open. <laughs> what excites you most I, about? I really, we came off of a period of a lot of excess, but also a lot of in that excess from 2010 to 2020 of, um, inequality. And I really do feel and I hope that there's this sort of actual pause now, in this moment of time where people are no, 
being greedy doesn't get you anywhere right now because it doesn't, there's nothing to be greedy about because it's not like there's this moment of excess. So instead people are coming down into themselves and we're in this period where I feel this energy of people wanting to build and create and have meaning. And for some people, that meaning is I'm actually going to participate less in the workforce and do my own thing. And for some that's building something new, that's better um, and gives uh, some positive impact to people. Um, but whatever it is, I think because there's less of this excess and greed that you can chase, people are sort of settling back down to our conversation just now to thinking what really matters to me. And I think if mm -hmm. people do what truly matters to them from a positive place, like we're going to end up in a better space over the next 10 years, um, doesn't mean we'll have the same economic growth. I think we'll just have hopefully a better way and more sort of calmer um, way of life, but we'll see. Like that's a hopeful idea. Uh, and I, I don't know if it'll be, but that's, that's what I'm hoping for. I don't know. What about you? Oh, um, flipping the question on me. Um, <laughs> you know, just, I think, yeah, people understanding, getting back to the basics and basic values and understanding who you are and, and kind of what impact and, and being able to be communal with yeah. your, the people beside you. I think it's again, like boiling down to the basics. Yeah. I love how many people are sort of taking up like pottery, other crafts, like just reading, writing all these things, because it, again, the excess has calmed down. So it allows you to focus on what matters. Yeah, definitely. So I asked you this question at the, at the start and it was in context of the mission at the, you know, on day one, but what is your mission today? My mission before came from this place of doing right where others do wrong. What I look at now is a bit more how to build with meaning, but also uh, with joy. And that's, I think, kind of missing sometimes, like, the version of me from 10 years ago was so serious and I can still sound serious, but actually I'm not that serious anymore or I'm a lot less serious because I actually think there's a real value in joy. And if you can do joy and be light about it and have fun, but still do right by the world, there's something really special about that because at the end of the day, you live one life. Um, and I really admire the people who are able to spread joy uh, and, create a more sort of pleasant place and a pleasant community. And so that's, I would say joy is something that I'm really looking towards. I love that. That's a great way to end off our chat. Um, if you have a few minutes, I would love to do a quick rapid fire um, just to kind of end on a, a fun little note. I hope it's fun. A joyful <laughs> moment. No, yes, exactly, see, let's see exactly. if we can do it. All right. Um, what is on, what's your, what's your pump up jam right now? What's on your playlist that you're loving today? Oh my gosh. That's embarrassing because so I'm getting, um, married in uh, a few months and, um, my Congrats. partner is Italian and she has, uh, made an Italian playlist and there's a song by Baila Mareno, which is like, it's like a hilarious, uh, um, sort of Italian English song that we listen to in the morning. 
Love it. Love it. Um, what's on your nightstand? Uh, water bottle and um, an aura ring and a book called Heat. Okay. What's your most treasured item in your office or home? I am a minimalist, so I don't own many things. Uh, and I would say my most treasured item in the home is a table that I designed uh, or collaborated on with a guy, uh, with a friend named Rafi, who's since become a friend. Um, and it's just like incredible reclaimed wood that he turned into a massive, beautiful table that I just, I know I'm going to, that we're going to have for the next 50 years. Love it. Biggest indulgence? Mm, they're called grateful gummies and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> um what do you send to congratulate someone what's like the best kind of uh are you, what's the best kind of gift i love sending like an email to someone that is short and just says hey really impressed love what you did here awesome and i love also sharing with people reactions that others have had about them that's i just love it i love doing that it just brings so much joy to other people Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, productivity hack. I've started using Upwork. It's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, advice that you're glad you ignored. Mm. Someone once called me an a-hole. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> I sort of ignored it um, and I'm glad I did because it could have spun me down a really deep hole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's your best habit and your worst habit? My best habit is not having too much structure and it's also my worst habit Fair because enough. I don't get enough exercise that I probably should. <laughs> well, you just came from a walk, so that's not bad. Um, Truth work uniform or do you have a uniform that you kind of uh, swear by uh i'm in a t-shirt almost every day uh in everlane t of course and then i am it's always a t-shirt jeans and like an overshirt or sweater nice. easy last question and this is a, a question i love asking anyone that is running a um or working in the fashion sector but if you were co-chair of the met gala what theme would you choose and who would you wear? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm not really in fashion, you know, but <laughs> um, I mean, I would just have to say at this point, I would choose like uh, uh, planet earth mm -hmm. and I would wear, uh, I would be curious what, how you could push the envelope from wearing uh, entirely like living or um, alive objects or like plants or something like that. Love it. Love it. Michael, thank you so much for your time, your insight. Um, it was lovely meeting you and chatting with you. And hopefully one day we'll see you on a, a warmer day in Toronto um, when you're back Indeed. in Canada. <laughs> you guys have uh, the best town. I love Toronto. It's a great city, a good, good, um, incredible food city. So uh, yes. if you like to eat, then we'll go for dinner when you're here. I'll count on it. Thanks so Take much. Take care, man. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Let us know what you liked, who you'd like to see on the show, and anything else you want to share. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission? <laughs>